Female warriors have been an important part of Hawaiian culture since ancient times. But presently, there's only one fully trained female practitioner and teacher in the Hawaiian martial art of Lua, and her name is Michelle Manu. Known to many as an actress, stunt coordinator, dancer, and martial artist, Michelle also found time to study business at Harvard. Her remarkable resume also includes a master's degree in metaphysical sciences. And then there's her day job, where she's been a legal professional for 26 years. In this episode, I speak to Michelle about her incredibly varied career, as well as the people, traditions, and culture of Hawaii, the challenges of the past and present, and her hopes for the future. Michelle, you've got a superhero-like resume. You seem to be so talented in so many areas. One thing that struck me, though, was you went to George Washington University, then you went to Harvard Business School. And I think it's fair to say for a lot of people, going down that path that opens up a lot of doors for you and opportunities where they may disappear into Wall Street, New York, Washington, what have you. But you made a decision to come back to Hawaii to embrace the Hawaiian traditions with the dancing, martial arts, and so forth. Was it always your plan when you embarked on your academic career and worked to promote and protect the Hawaiian culture in various respects? That's a beautiful question, Dan. I'm kind of conflicted because I'm also half Scandinavian. (laughs) So, and I also have some Asian on my paternal side. Because of the way that the world was back during my parents' era, uh, my father became a Christian and left the Aina or the land and went to the continent, uh, specifically Chicago, believe it or not. (laughs) He pursued his academia there, and that's when he met my mother. But because of such this uh, discrimination and things of that nature, uh, and also an interracial marriage, you know, this 5'10", white, blonde, blue-eyed, very fair Scandinavian married to this darker guy um, who both in their own rights were very studious, very smart, uh, both valedictorians of their college class. It was easier for us to, I guess, we were told that we were not allowed to say that we were Hawaiian. So I think my father left the uh, land and his family and at that point became publicly only Asian because it was better for business and it was just more acceptable. You know, and being a man in that era, you back in Hawaii, you had to wear your hair a certain way, wear a certain type of jeans or pants and wear certain types of shoes. We hear it pervasively throughout men of that generation, even into their 80s right now, where they weren't given respect. The last thing they wanted to be was a Hawaiian man. So I think the prohibition my father put on me as the oldest of five only made me more curious as to why can't I know more about the culture? And it's been something that's been continually rooting in me since I was young of why not know more about that? And so that's led me here now to really understand the issues, the issues of that time, of my father's time, and where we are today. And I think that's what draws me to the culture today. For me, it's interesting talking about Hawaii, because as a kid growing up in England, we learn all about this, you know, great heroic figure of Captain Kirk, who, among other things, was reportedly the first European to try and establish formal ties with Hawaii. And obviously, things went wrong because his men 
kidnapped some of the Hawaiian women and one thing led to another and he was killed. And in a sense, that kind of marked the beginning of the end of British expansion. And then you have more than a century later, after the Africa land grab, where the colonial powers were starting to kind of lose power. We were coming to the end of that era. And then ironically, Hawaii, where Cook had gone so long before, ended up becoming absorbed as part of the United States. Now, you said that your father was of a generation where people were afraid or intimidated about being Hawaiian. It's something they wanted to keep under wraps and not be proud of because of how that retreated in society. Is that still the case? Or is there a generation now of people your age and younger who are much more conscious of wanting to embrace what came before, not necessarily saying they don't want to be American, but considering the history of Hawaii and kind of reevaluating who they are culturally? That's happening. Yes, you're absolutely correct. I think there's two pivotal points here with occupation. It is what it is. We have to work with what it is right now, but I think all of us are confused exactly what happened. I think we're so quick to blame the white man. While that did happen, when there were visitors, they were welcomed, and our king specifically became very enthralled with the metal weaponry. So there was a lot of land trading and sandalwood trading and other trading so that he could get his hands on these metal weapons. Uh, and they were quickly introduced into his military. After his death, so we're about a little over 200 years, our queen, Ka'ahumanu, um, which was uh, the main wife, if you will, or, you know, he had several women that he, and women also had several men that they were in relationship with, or there was one unified relationship between a man and a woman for specifically a heritage and making sure the bloodline was that of royal. But our queen at the abrogation, um, which is in 1819, once Kamehameha died, she became a Christian, she changed her name, and she, the very Heiau, temples and the way of life, we call it, you know, it's, it's a kapu. Today, we know this word as forbidden. But in ancient times, Maldi times, pre-contact, it actually meant sacred. And when you look at that word and its very definition, it's not that something was forbidden. It changes how we view things as being sacred. Uh, the ki'i or statues, the way of life that meant so much to our people that had mana or power from generation to generation was then thrown into the ocean, was then sent away and gifted, um, was destroyed and also buried. And so we can blame the missionaries and the explorers that came. But ultimately, I hate to say this, but it was our very own monarchy that played a very large hand in destroying the kingdom as we knew it. Now, if you rewind to when Kamehameha was attempting to unite the islands through bloodshed, we revere him today and honor him. I do too. Not so much uh, Ka'ahumanu, because pure evil. In my opinion, this is just my opinion, not the people's opinion. You know, if Kamehameha didn't unite the islands, then we would be looking at each island being possibly territories of other countries, like we see in South Polynesia, even in just Samoa. There's American Samoa, there's Western Samoa. You know, there's part of Tahiti that stand on their own and others that are have been 
greatly influenced and still influenced by France. In this generation, I'm almost 50. And I see a lot of outreach sovereignty movements. And it's my belief as just humans, not even as the Hawaiian people that in Kanaka, it's different. Hawaiian could be anyone that's birthed there that doesn't have cocoa or blood. Kanaka is blood. And I think that there's a lot of sovereignty movements that take us well into these extreme areas of swinging into erraticism and just these very serious movements of overtaking the U.S. And then you see those that just don't care. They're assimilated into the world today, continuing with health issues, the wartime food that was brought um, during Pearl Harbor. And this is now somehow the cuisine of Hawaii. I think that uh, somewhere in the meeting place in between is where we can make the most progress and work with what we have. And, you know, on that, the last point I'd like to make is that We don't do that by blocking doorways and blocking roads. While that brings attention and also support, which is very helpful, we also need to fight these battles in the existing structure in which we operate, and that is within law and government. So I think the Kanaka going out to see the value of academia and credentials so that they can speak on our behalf within these realms in which the laws are made. And also proactivity to voting. It does matter. Everyone's voice matters. And this is the system that we have instead of saying, I am a subject of the kingdom of Hawaii and I am not part of the U.S. Well, you need a a passport to travel throughout the world. You need a driver's license to drive and you need to pay taxes. So it's working within the current structure that we are bound by. This is where we really, I believe, really make a difference. Now, recently we saw this horrific tragedy in Hawaii with these fires that devastated whole communities and countless people lost their lives. I think for a lot of people who aren't from Hawaii, we tend to think of it as just this island paradise. But one thing that kept coming up in the news reports was this perception from indigenous Hawaiians who said this exemplifies the fact that we have two Hawaii's. There's a Hawaii for the tourists And then there's the Hawaii for the native people, which is often very hard. They don't have great economic opportunities. They don't have great career opportunities. With this tragedy having occurred from that, I have also heard people now have worries that hotels and big investors will try to sweep into the areas where everything was destroyed and people were killed and try to buy that land because they see the value in it as more you know hotels and tourist destinations on the other hand i've seen people saying hey well maybe this has drawn attention to inequality in hawaii and going forward maybe we can try to change things so we rebuild better in a sense which of those outcomes do you think is more likely to occur i think both i think there are those that are there Um, i have word uh, being in the legal profession for 27 years now. I've been contacted by firms that would like to go and help Kanaka specifically. I've also heard from those firms that are integrous where there are legal vultures on the ground. Just today, I saw two celebrities join to create another fund to directly, they swear (laughs) on their video that it goes directly to the Kanaka and those that have been affected, but we don't know where that money goes. And I don't understand why we have to do this, why they've done this when there's already longstanding, uh, well, since the 8th, these nonprofits that are on ground doing the work uh, in many different ways, very powerfully, why they couldn't just direct them to these nonprofits that already exist and the money is going real time for real needs. So I'm working with Ho'aka, a nonprofit 
nonprofit where they're on the ground and they're part of uh, Malama Maui. And so uh, that's who I'm working with. I think the exasperation is of just the emotions of the people and it's past generational trauma that's coming out. I think, you know, we all have moments in our life where it's like pre or post. I think this is going to be pre ahi or fire and post ahi. This is going to define many of those individuals where life will never be the same. On the flip side of that, if we can keep our emotions intact and actually feel them, don't suppress them and put that into action because it's a call to action to use this energy while everything is energy. We understand what this is, this grief, this tremendous grief, this tremendous anger, this tremendous confusion. If we can focus that on constructive conversations and working with those that have been vetted uh, to truly want to help and to change laws and to put infrastructure like sirens in place, then I think this Lahaina and the west side of Maui would actually be better than it has been with the raping of the land, so diverting the waters uh, since the abrogation of the kapu and the way of the people. It's been diverted to other parts of the island. That part, Lahaina, is a wetland naturally. Right. So this should have never happened. So looking at this and becoming better instead of just screaming and yelling, and yes, there's pain and we have to have empathy for that, but also taking that pain and turning it into something that, you know, the, the aina, the, the land will rebirth, no doubt, but how can we help that happen? And so I think it's going to be a mixture of the two, Dan. Let's hope that the progressive voices win. Now, moving on to something more positive. You're a Knight Commander of the Royal Order of Kamehameha, and presently the only fully credentialed female warrior. But in the past, there was a long tradition of Hawaiian female warriors so the fact that we haven't had any for the last 200 years until you came along, is that something that was tied to colonialism? Yes, Dan, it is. Uh, since the abrogation, well, it actually started before that with Kamehameha himself um, as he became enthralled with the metal weapons and uniting the islands, the way of the Olohe or the martial leader, where the chief and the king would rely upon changed, obviously, before it was about what warriors ask, why? Why would I do this versus soldier follow orders? And so this is the era in which my teacher came from maximum kills. And it is about taking someone out. It's not necessarily about the holistic or metaphysical way of connection and protection. It's definitely changed over the years. And that's because of colonialism. The reason why I see seem uh, illusionary or like, how can this be in over 200 years is because our culture, not just the warrior culture, but all of our culture has always consistently been told while we have some Hawaiian scholars uh, that are revered for their accuracy and ethic. Most of our story has been since that time and continues to be told by someone that is not of the culture. Part of this is that there's this patriarchal view brought by outsiders, which then what our history was told, which then women had a different role where they were just supporting or they were just um, continuing the, the bloodline and the lineage of the specific surnames through childbirth. It was like that in our ancient culture, but also we were equal to men, if not even more highly regarded because we were seen as the ones that continued life. And in different parts of the South Pacific, there are stories where women were so sacred that they could 
if they got into two in between two warring groups, war could not because she wouldn't let them pass that it couldn't continue. There's also stories of when victory was taken, they would line the men up and they would watch them brutally murder the women and children so that they could see that their future would bleed away and die. So women have, you know, in the South Pacific have had a, a very pivotal role in balance and birthing that was, which is from the non-seen, the unseen and spirit into the physical realm. And they also had in the Hawaiian culture duties of returning those spirits back from physical form into the non-physical form. I think that's why I seem like an apparition here, an illusionary action figure, maybe from a video show. There's alleged, you know, feminists that want everything equal. But I think that there is lack of balance when we don't understand each other's roles, just like men are extremely important. They handled a lot of the terrestrial things on land that women were not allowed to participate, but were seen as set apart and shouldn't participate in. There were different times during the moon cycle where only women would fish and the men would stay out of the water. There was this mutual respect and admiration and collaboration and cooperation between the sexes at one time. And, you know, standing here today as probably the only representative right now, there are other others that are training up. There are a lot there's a lot of adversity that comes with that i think it's really interesting too because in the west we tend to think of ourselves as being progressive and yeah you know you've talked about in hawaii the role of women before the west came along and a similar i did a podcast earlier this year about dahomey in africa where they also had women warriors in a very equal society in many respects that suddenly kind of came to an end in the era when the french invaded and you know applied western standards to the country but um moving on i've watched a number of your videos on youtube and during these martial arts routines and you're training people you use a variety of different kind of weapons but there was one in particular i was watching and it looked to me like an oar for a canoe or a kayak or something so is there a canoe paddle that doubles as a combat weapon yeah, so this is this is a beautiful question. So the warriors were pretty much uh, specialized. You know, some were mauna, mountain warriors. Some were just, you know, flatlands. Others had to fight on rock. Special class of seafaring warriors. Increased breath capabilities, deep sea diving. They would spearfish uh, to practice uh, their spearing, their ihe, if you will. The paddle, the oar, what we call the hoe, was obviously from the seafaring warriors. And it was actually the one that I use from my teacher, is the olden paddle. Today, we see more tea paddles, which I just made three that I'm going to introduce to my students because that's modern and I'm evolving what was. So yes, that's the original ore that we used. And it's such a beautiful, beautiful weapon with the, the blade of the paddle. It's used very similarly to the longbow that we have or an ihea spear, which would be pointed and sometimes with barbed points at the top that were carved. That's definitely a large part of our pre-contact uh, warrior system. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense in terms of efficiency, because I should imagine if you're on a small boat, you don't want to have to carry extra weight unnecessarily. So if you can use an implement you already have to have because of the boat as a weapon, then you saved yourself some space. Yeah, a lot of the weapons were utility first because something went down and that's what they were holding. <laughs> so what we 
see today though with the weaponry is 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 very these beautiful perfect pieces that are in museums or sold or displayed but in reality they weren't this beautiful back in ancient times we didn't have machines or different types of assistance in making them so it was all by hand now obviously a large part of your intention is to try to maintain and promote these hawaiian traditional practices but there's also a more day-to-day practical element to it as well because i've read that you teach self-defense classes catered towards women many of whom work in professions where they could potentially be at high risk for physical attack so can you tell me about that oh it's a bridge from the ancient to to modern it's really quite beautiful if you think of the ancient warriors or just women as a whole in, in, in Hawaii, you know, it's, we painted it as this beautiful paradise, you know, utopia where there was never any crime. That's not true. There were people that were punished and put to death and it was swift. Uh, if they broke the kapu, the code of conduct, women had to, uh, obviously defend themselves. There's some maneuvers that I'm aware of, things that they use, but they were very good at infiltrating areas that male warriors couldn't. Most of the time when men were off at war or not on the actual property. So the women, you know, whether they had a broom or they had, you know, whatever they used, they learned how to use that as weaponry. So that's today's time. So if you think of our ka'ane as our strangling cord, today that could be your charging cord for your phone. It can be a sarong. It could be a belt. Many different things that I use, but it's just ancient, but made modern is the techniques are the same. Principles are the same. And so I've been able to take part of what was, and I don't work in poisons, (laughs) but I have... Again, some of what was and adapted it to today's world because we live in a totally different world. The crime is up. Women and children are going missing. Men are being abducted. Little boys. Also, the slave trade uh, in different parts of the world. So it's my job, I feel, with this Kuleana responsibility to also not just perpetuate what was, speak about it, show it, but also make it modern so that we can survive in today's world. And it's really interesting because us women were forced to take dance. That was a girl's activity during my youth and still some today. But more and more are getting into the fight scene and training. But using that dance, that forced dance, I always thought was a disadvantage and such a waste of decades while boys and, you know, got to train in other things and bump around and play football and do all these things. Women were kind of like a one woman show. We played quietly with dolls. I didn't, but dolls and tea parties and, you know, very calm, very one person type of activity where boys got to mix it up. And it's shown that both in boys and girls, when they get to do team sports and work with one another, their capacity for very good leadership is birthed at that time, because there's always conflict wherever humans are, you know, at any age. So, you know, I'm able to take these um, at dance, and also the martial and create this beautiful program where we get to learn our power. As women, most of us have had situations where we've been exposed to what people call masculine energy, but it's this very bullying energy. And we don't want to feel that in our body because we were a victim of it. So I, I try to teach how it feels when they're confronted with force by me in an environment with alone or with uh, other women where they can get triggered and actually push through it and learn how to defend themselves and access this energy and use it because the masculine to me in physics, that energy is just action energy. And it's absolutely nothing without the feminine strategy and setup potential energy. We know you throw a punch, you want to know where you're going. You're not just going to throw wildly 
especially if your survival is at stake. So it's really knowing the feminine setup into that masculine kinetic force energy of power. I try to talk to them in a science sense and a metaphysical sense of this is your right. If someone touches you, you have every right to touch them back for them to work in their awareness, to understand where their exits are. Or if someone breaks in their house, where is their hiding place if they can't get out with their children or anyone in their family? If they're out in public, there's a code word so that if someone says it, you identify where the danger is and you get on the other side of mom or dad or auntie. And so there's these things that we can do that were part of the ancient culture that are still tried and true today that most of it, you know, we can avoid a lot of this uh, force coming at us or a situation through our awareness. And that's masculine and feminine. There's no age range. You know, it's just some preparation in their perishable skills. The, we have to think about these things. Otherwise, um, we will become complacent and think that these sort of things can't happen to us. So it's been a beautiful convergence and it continues to evolve. Another feather you have in your cap is as an actress. So you've been in lots of television and movies. And in recent years, we have seen several movies, TV shows, tied to Hawaii like for example there was the Disney film Moana I was wondering though when you see these types of projects coming out is there a sense of thinking okay this is good we're finally getting some representation here for Hawaii Polynesia or is it a little bit disingenuous and the studios are just kind of rolling out material that fits their perception of Polynesia versus something that's truly authentic. Are we at a point now where we're getting more legitimate representation or do you think there's still more work to be done? There's still work to be done. I think that will forever be uh, since, you know, the 50s where they painted uh, Hawaii as the Aloha state and welcome. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, they create jobs with tourism, but they don't create careers. And I think um, it's still very much Mai Tais and umbrellas and drinks and plastic lays and Hawaiian barbecue. There's a lot more work to be done. And I think it will be done as we hopefully raise up the current and future generation to tell their own stories and start getting content out there. And there are plenty out there that are creating content, uh, real content that's authentic um, to today's time, right? There's the ancient way. And then there's also what we believe to be Hawaiian today, because we've been so highly influenced. But you know, it's about the funding, Dan, there are very few production companies that are willing to invest in no named <laughs> and unnamed uh, up, up and coming indigenous filmmakers. So this is where we really come into where uh, the, we don't see the accurate representation. And honestly, uh, you know, I said before, we're not Pollyanna. There was some very strict rules in Polynesia altogether, but in Hawaii specifically, you know, it is shocking. My art was banned by our own queen because during a demonstration at a feast with missionaries, their response to the demonstration that we're seeing, they, they, they were horrified. And so she heard the gasps. She saw that the visitors were uncomfortable and she banned our public display of Lua. I think this mentality is still pervasive in the world when it comes to how vicious we really are as people, how serious we are with our culture and the rules of our culture and accurate representation. So it's absolutely counteractive 
to the come to Hawaii, here's a plastic right. lay, come to a luau. It's completely opposite. The duality of it is is shocking. We also have Hawaiians now that have been converted to Christianity and straddle that fence between honoring their kupuna and the ancestors and the ancient ways while they're still a Christian. And while some do this very elegantly, I'm not one of them and I do not try. It's difficult to have these conversations. Michelle, it's been a really awesome discussion. I've learned a lot about you and a lot about Hawaii. And I know for a fact there are going to be a lot of people listening to this who say, hey, I want to hear more about Michelle. Then obviously we can cover for somebody with such a diverse career in a 30-minute episode. So for folks listening there who want to hear more about you, more about the Hawaiian culture, what are the best resources for them to look into? Um, well, I am in the process of uh, actually starting a new production. So that's going to be wonderful. And I hope to showcase a lot of the indigenous um, Hawaiian filmmakers, uh, whether they're two years old, <laughs> operating a camera or they're 97. My website is a good place. They can uh, definitely reach out to me on social media. I do check messages. Some do go to spam. So it takes me a while to get through all of those. There are different lineages of Lua. And um, there are some where they're just martially focused and quite sloppy uh, and don't understand their connection to the ancient. And then there's others that are just, you know, ancient. And so, you know, there's uh, quite a few lineages out there, different islands, different families, and also on the continent. And then I have students abroad as well. So it's just finding the right teacher and some mm -hmm. won't teach someone without cocoa or blood. So, you know, it's just, it's just different. It depends on what teacher that you locate and express interest. And you can't just walk in. It's not by the gi and learn. There's an application process to train with me as well, because you become a lineage holder. You're right. the future. And it's very important that I'm not teaching individuals that don't have self-control, because now I'm just equipping them with techniques to further hurt people. You'll find different teachers. And I have to make sure that, you know, anyone that does join me, uh, that's welcome, that passes through the application process, abides by the kapu that I have in place, as well as can take instruction from a female instructor because I'm the only one out there right now. Understand what you're walking into because you also are walking into so you know a, a cultural practice that's not like any other Hawaiian cultural practice. Anyone can dance hula. Anyone can learn how to weave. Anyone can learn how to kakao or tattoo or fish. These are all cultural practices, but it's very difficult to get into Lua and to remain mm -hmm. true. And there's a lot of fire that comes with it. 